from Studio 3B. Now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth featuring musical guest Sting. Before there was the iPhone and before there was the Newton message pad, there was this. General Magic's Magic Link Personal Digital Assistant. This is this is geeky. Documentary filmmaker Matt Maud joins us from across the pond to talk about the biggest Silicon Valley failure that you've never heard of. Plus, an update on our quest to attend CES 2020. We actually might make it. Or make it to our media. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. So, Alan, I don't know if I've ever showed you one of my prized geek possessions. You're going to talk about your Newton, aren't you? My Newton Message Pad 120. So I've come up with these academic alerts. You will receive one as soon as your grades start to slip in any subject. This way, your parents won't have to wait until report card time to punish you. How innovative. I like it. Hey, Dolph, take a memo on your Newton. Beat up, Martin. When it came out at the time, I didn't own one. I knew someone who had one, and I was so insanely envious that this guy was on the cutting edge of mobile technology. But the reality is there was a predecessor to the Newton. And of course, for someone who doesn't know what the Newton Message Pad 120 is, or the, the 100 or the 110, it is the predecessor to the iPhone. Yeah, absolutely. They wouldn't have, uh, we wouldn't have an iPhone if it wasn't for this thing. But this thing is actually the direct result of something that had gone on prior to that. I have read about several things pre-Newton, but I had never, ever heard of this company called General Magic. Maybe I read about it in a Walter Isaacson book, maybe in some Steve Jobs. I, I don't know. Maybe you saw it in the Wall Street Journal back in like 1987 or yeah, something. Yeah, I was reading the Wall Street Journal in 1987. No, <laughs> it was not. <laughs> it, well, the neat thing about it is that General Magic actually came out of Apple. Apple looked at this idea of a, a mobile portable computer thingy and went, yeah, I don't know if this is really what we want. We're focused on the Apple II. We're focused on this new thing called the Macintosh. And so they spun it off as a, a separate company. And it is considered to be the most important failure of Silicon Valley. Okay. It must be a failure because I never heard of it. Well, as a result of that, a new documentary has come out on General Magic called General Magic the Movie. In 1990, there was no digital telecommunications industry. It did not exist. There were no digital cell phones. There was no World Wide Web. We're going to create what comes after the personal computer. And it was a telephone. It was essentially going to be a smartphone with a lot of intelligence. When we were talking about reinventing telephony, we meant it. We're trying to make something that people love. We needed to be like your watch, your glasses, your wallet. We decided to make everything. That meant we were custom building every piece. It's, it's insane. How small will it finally be, do you think? Someday, Dick Tracy Rishrod. Director Matt Maud joins us now. Matt, good to have you with us. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for having me. I, I hope you're not insulted by the fact that I that I never really heard of General Magic. I saw the the trailer for the for the documentary, and 
it looked really, really cool, but I feel really bad for not really knowing much about the company. Okay, so don't feel bad. Uh, I mean, if you guys feel bad, you can only imagine how awful I feel because I'd never heard about General Magic before uh, making the movie. Um, I'm not a technologist and I'm not particularly interested in technology. Don't chuck stuff at me. Um, but the things that really drew me to the story was that when I look at Silicon Valley today, look at Silicon Valley in years gone by, you look at companies and they personify themselves behind a founder usually, but it, they personify all of their successes through just one person. And it creates this sort of superhero myth that the entire success of these companies are responsible just onto one person. When we think about Facebook, we think about Mark Zuckerberg. I think still to this day, when we think about Apple, we think about Steve Jobs. And what it does is it creates this genius-like entity that rather than inspiring people to follow in similar footsteps, I think it creates the opposite reaction. I think it creates apathy. Because how could we mere mortals follow in these footsteps when they've done so much? Ah. So when I came across this story, General Magic, and I looked through all of this incredible archival footage of all these earnest 20-year-olds trying to create this iPhone 20 years before the iPhone was a thing, I was just amazed at how relatable these people were. Engineers that are, you know, forever stereotyped as being unfeeling, unemotive, unrelatable. There are all these people that looked and sounded like people like me and people I knew. And I just thought, if these ordinary people, when doing something extra, create extraordinary things, I felt like that was a story that was worth telling and one I thought that would be really interesting to people, irrespective as to whether they'd be interested in technology or not. In Silicon Valley, there's a lot of origin stories of companies that were at, had the right idea but were completely at the wrong time, and, and yet they paved the path for everything else. There are a handful of stories that define Silicon Valley. You know, there, there are legends, and General Magic was one of the legends. You have to believe, you have to be proud, you have to be absolutely convinced that you're gonna bend the way the world is moving and you're gonna take it in a different direction. If you're always playing it safe and you're not failing, there's a very high probability you're not doing anything particularly important. Now, what era are we talking about? So General Magic spun out of Apple in 1989, 1990, and they didn't release their first product, I believe, until 1994. They called it the Magic Link, and they were tied to it with Sony, and then, of course, because there was a cellular component to it, they were tied in with AT&T. It seemed like quite a dog's breakfast. Um, well, just that so many different things coming together uh, all at the same time, being pulled in different directions. It, it felt like there was no cohesion at the beginning. Yeah. And I think that mindset now looking at it from 2019, looking backwards, it would look like chaos. But if you imagine that the founder, CEO, a guy called Mark Peratt, was trying to create not just everything that is inside of your iPhone, it's also everything that your iPhone can do. You know, your ability to be able to be connected to anyone across the world. There was no internet or World Wide Web that really existed back in, but existed in the forms that exist today. So they needed to work out how they were going to be able to connect to everybody. So you did need a company like AT&T. You did need companies like French Telecom in order to be able to kind of form an alliance so that this software could all talk to each other through the connectivity of different companies in different countries. And then on the hardware side of things, you also required the likes of Sony and Motorola because who would trust 
Apple, who made the Apple II computer that kids grew up with in their schools. How could you trust them with the underlying infrastructure? Yeah, exactly. I mean, just to reiterate it, 2019 standards, looking back, makes no sense. But it was the way in which you released products back in those days. Sony was the market leader in terms of products. You know, you had the Sony Walkman, camcorders. They were such a powerful brand that, that people just instantaneously associated them with success. It's kind of hard to think about it back, you know, with, with our mindset now that Apple could be anything other than a telephone company or a computer company. Apple wasn't doing very well back then. Um, they were still fighting with Microsoft for operating system dominance. Microsoft chose to be the uh, the open source company with 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 DOS, but Apple wanted to stay proprietary. So it, yeah, it does not make sense for Apple to be involved in this sort of thing. I, I just pulled up Apple's worldwide market share in 1990. Matt, you want to make a guess? Is cl closest without going over. This is this is um, this is prices right rules. <laughs> two percent i do not know i i'm, I'm wanna, i want to even say it's lower than that 3.3 percent market share wow so ding 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 i go i get to go for the big deal well done yeah flip <laughs> the card Which we, now that we've established that um, the apple of today is very different from the apple back then they spun it off and they had their own individual company called general magic and it was filled with people from Apple, like Andy Hertzfeld, for example. Uh, he's one of the original Macintosh developers from the 1980s. Uh, Bill Atkinson, as well, was an engineer who worked at Apple from you know, 1978, right up until he, he jumped ship to, to the General Magic division as well. And then, of course, John Scully, who was the CEO of Apple at the time. If I was to say that your documentary has a villain in this, <laughs> I wonder if, if, if it's John Scully. Uh, I think John definitely plays an antagonistic role in the film. Um, I hope that he is also validated uh, at some point whilst you're watching the film. He was our ally, or so we thought. Today we are launching Newton, a revolution for the pocket. They had uh, decided to make something essentially based on our original models. It's the most important thing that I've ever been involved with in my entire life. It's bad enough you get betrayed by them, but now they're going to try to put you out of business. That was fighting. That was battle. Like, John's a really interesting character, you know, again, from someone who's not a technologist. You know, the, the reputation that John Scully has had throughout his life, uh, you know, from I was born in 1985, and I've only ever known John Scully as the person that ousted Steve Jobs from Apple. I didn't even really know about his kind of pre-Pepsi history, but that has been his legacy over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting going to interview him. We were told by everybody, do not go and interview John Scully. Why would you want to do that? Why do you want to hear this guy's opinion? And we were blown away by his honesty and his ability to walk through, you know, the, the mistakes that he'd made in his life with the perspective of so many years. Um, so yeah, he does he does play a slightly antagonistic role, but I hope too that he has, you know, that, that kind of validation in which he, he, he is able to express regret and, and wanting and wished 
for a different future in which we would have been able to support General Magic and, and people like Mark Pratt. And um, just going back to the Bill Atkinson and Andy Hertzfeld, I mean, or, or Susan Care for that matter, the one who was like responsible for the look and feel of the Macintosh icon. Totally. So if you go back to 1984, there was a Rolling Stone uh, article about the Macintosh team. January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. So you've got these programmers and engineers that are in the in in Rolling Stone, you know, next to Hendrix. Rock stars. Total rock stars. And the photography that's there, it makes them look like superheroes. And you've got people like Andy Herzl, Bill Atkinson, Joanna Hoffman, all stood together in this like cool huddle. Another picture of Susan Kerr just rocking it out on some denims next to a Macintosh computer. They just look like the people that you want to be. And the furore and claim that, that this article and others created about the Macintosh just propelled them into a status of thinking, I want to have a computer like them. I want to program like them because they, they looked relatable. They were in their 20s. They were wearing like ordinary clothes. They described themselves as pirates. They were, you know, the total exception to what was happening in computer engineering at the time with this kind of buttoned-up, tie-wearing look of IBM. And, yeah, when General Magic came into being and people heard that Andy and Bill were working on their next adventure, every single engineer in the Valley just wanted to work with them. They had no idea what they were working on. They just wanted to work with these guys. And so, yeah, like more and more secrets kind of kept on coming out. And it was like, oh, John Hoffman's there. Susan Kerr's there. Like, we have to go to General Magic because whatever they're doing with the people that are doing it, we have to, be, we have to go and do it too. Well, to, to the point of John Scully being the bad guy, wasn't it? And I suppose he's the bad guy in the eyes of many of the people that, that you mentioned, like Porat, Hertzfeld, and Atkinson, is that at the end of the day, he did an end run around them, didn't he? Uh, give me end run. Sorry, I don't want to... Well, insofar as um, they were working on this handheld device, and then while they were working on it, secretly Apple was also working on the Newton. So what killed the general magic, magic link device? Was it that there was a constant chaos behind the scenes? You couldn't wrangle these engineers to focus on the things they needed to focus on to deliver? Or was it the fact that just before they released their product, Apple came out with a competing product? I think it's all of those factors. Um, I think there was uh, a hubris that was going on at General Magic that they could create everything that we now use today. They could create it, just this small group of engineers. Um, there was definitely that kind of arrogance that they could kind of punch a hole in the universe and that they would be the only entity that would do it. They were, kind of, they were killed just in the same way that a lot of other products kind of believed that they could create their own proprietary form of the internet and that we would all access it through a monthly subscription fee rather than just having it completely open-ended and free. Um, I think timing's a huge thing. I mean, we don't really talk about it in the documentary. We don't go too techy and too kind of technology-focused and having too much information. But I'm, I'm always struck that the memory card that went inside this device was one megabyte. The RAM inside this device was one megabyte. They were creating all the functionality of everything that your smartphone has in it today with a megabyte. And I think that's one of the reasons why the engineers like, are still famous today, you know, the, because they squeezed 
absolutely everything out of nothing. It's kind of like when you hear about the Apollo spacecraft, like the lunar module had 76 kilobytes of memory and only four kilobytes of it was actual workable, writable memory. But it was the computer that got the three astronauts up into space and then down onto the moon. This talk is number six in a series by various people. The idea is to explain as much as possible about a classic computer system in 60 minutes. The Apollo Guidance Computer, AGC, is a digital computer that was designed from scratch specifically for use on board the Apollo spacecraft to support the Apollo moon landings between 1969 and 1972. Developed at MIT between 1961 and 1966, a total of 42 AGCs were built at a cost of about $200,000 each. The base clock is about one megahertz, all data is 15 bits, and there are two kilowatts of RAM and 36 kilowatts of ROM. It's about the size of a large suitcase, weighs 32 kilograms, and consumes about 55 watts. It was a kind of similar and similar thing with General Magic. I'm trying to trying to imagine what, what they would have had a chip in this thing. Well, how fast would that chip chip have been? Totally. You know, like it, it's just it, it kind of blows my mind. It like that you've got these engineers that spin out of General Magic after it kind of collapses and fails. But they've got all the learnings. They know how to squeeze absolutely everything out of nothing. So suddenly, when the silicon becomes available, the chip becomes available, and the touchscreen technology improves, and the Wi-Fi connections, you know, suddenly just means that you have you don't have to rely on just your brute force and intellect to squeeze everything out. The suddenly the means and the equipment and the technology that's constantly modernizing that allows this product to actually exist. And so I think, you know, General Magic suffered a huge amount of failures and it potentially could have survived if it just kept on um, iterating the product, just releasing a slightly different and better version every single year. But it was timing that killed it. You know, with the, when I think about technology in the 80s and 90s, you bought a computer and it would last you for five years, six years. Right. And now you kind of think like... You know, if you have a phone that's like four years old, people look at you slightly weird and ask you if everything's okay. Like, we're so used to just buying the, the newest version that's released every single Christmas. But that wasn't the deal in the 80s and 90s. You created a product that hopefully was perfect so that it would last a long time. And that cycle of releasing products has completely changed in the last 20 years. So when did General oh, Magic... Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. You were asking about the chip which chip they used inside it. Yes. They used a Motorola chip in okay. this particular device, and I'm looking it up right now, 25 megahertz. The Dragon Microprocessor by Motorola, the 68300 chip, a variation of the chips that you saw in the uh, powerful computers of the day, like the Amiga. you astronauts? Buzz Aldrin, Gordon Cooper, Scott Carpenter. We'd like to compare notes with Stevie on the new space station. Hello? Hi, Tommy Lasorda for Stevie. Hey, what's up? Just a question about moving Randolph to the number two position. Yeah, second, and this will work. It's perfect. Hi! Hey, we're the Pointer Sisters. Stevie's expecting us. Well, come in. We need help with our new album. The Amiga. Color, sound, graphics, power. At a price to make it truly the computer for the creative mind. What can the Amiga do? Well, what do you want it to do? Mr. O'Neill! Phoebe is upstairs, but it's kind of crowded. Would you like some fried chicken while you're waiting? Amiga from Commodore. The computer for the creative mind. I think I my first desktop... 
which I bought in 1992, had a 40 MHz chip. So given what I was using on my desktop versus what was in this thing, that's not bad. Yeah, so the guts of it seem to be fairly respectable. If we think back to it, if you can imagine this, first of all, it doesn't look almost anything like an iPhone, <laughs> unlike the Newton message pad, which kind of vaguely has that sort of rectangular form factor. This one was more square mm. in nature. It had the screen in the center, um, as opposed to if you look at an iPhone now in portrait mode, it's got a little bar at the top and a little bar at the bottom. Uh, this one had the bars on the sides. And the, the LCD screen was not backlit. It was... Uh, only grayscale, you couldn't see it in broad daylight, and it weighed a billion pounds compared to what we've got today. Mm. I mean, the, the the original drawings that Mark came up with back in 1989, it's uncanny how much that phone looks like an iPhone 5. Um, but yeah, I mean, making the thing with like early 90s tech, it just began to look more and more like a Fisher-Price toy. Right. So as a guy who was born in 1985, yeah. how surreal was this journey for you? Um, it's, it's strange because I think, you know, like email addresses just feel like the air that we breathe, that you don't, you don't have any sort of understanding of, of where that comes from and, you, and the, the kind of connections that we all have now that are so seamless. It's, I think what was really interesting for me is just how much blood, sweat and tears have, have gone into creating all the things now that we just take completely for granted. Um, and, you know, it's been interesting kind of talking with like friends who've come and watched the film or kind of people afterwards. And they're just kind of re-remembering all of these, these analog steps that we've taken to this almost pure digitism now. Um, Cause I remember like, interacting with computers in the early 90s and you'd have to read like a huge manual and a book to understand computers whereas now like anyone can unbox a smartphone and it's just ready to go you know the technology i think only really hits the mainstream when someone can pick it up and feel like an expert and they don't feel stupid using it and that's been like the biggest change i think in computing since i was born to where we are now because seeing people interact with the device, just watching the user testing videos, people would, would adapt to the technology of Magic Cap, their operating system, really quickly. <laughs> what was it called? Magic Cap, yeah. Magic Cap, okay. It's like with the Palm Pilot devices back in the 90s from US Robotics and others, they had their graffiti handwriting recognition that required you to change the way you wrote letters on the screen, yeah. such that to this day, I still write the letter E, <laughs> starting at the top and working my way down in a single stroke because you couldn't lift the pen off the screen when you wrote. Oh, that's right. I'd forgotten about that. Permanently changing the way I work. And to your point, today's technology recognizes that you have to be able to pick something up and work it without having to pour, pour through a manual. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, I remember my goddaughter, like she could not speak at the time, but she knew how to unlock an iPhone, swipe through, open up anything. You know, that <laughs> kind of that kind of engineering, that kind of thought processing, that kind of user testing that makes it so seamless that someone under the age of one can operate it. Staggering. So what kind of technology did come out of this? Something that we can identify with today? Um, Aside from the iPhone in its entirety? Well, <laughs> no, there, there had to be something. We talked about icons. We talked about um, the form factor a little bit. What else? 
um, emojis and emoticons were invented at General Magic. So there were the idea of messaging at General Magic was called postcards from the sky. And there would be a mixture of text that you would type out with your fingers. There was also a pen that you could put your own handwriting into. And then there'd also be these stickers or emojis that were animated that you could add to your message. And you could also add voice so that people could click on this mouth and it would play a message of what you'd spoken into, you know, almost kind of a combination of iMessage and WhatsApp voice notes. Um, touchscreen was invented as General Magic. They, I think they, they identified some sort of Japanese glass company that had worked out a means to be able to make touching of touchscreen uh, much more viable on a much smaller form factor. The modem uh, previously had been a hardware item that had to be part of every device. And at General Magic, they invented the software modem so that it, uh, they, when they took this to Japan, um, there was a group of Japanese engineers that were saying, Tony-san, th there is something wrong with your drawing. Where is the modem? And they had to explain that the modem is in the software. And they said, no, 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 it can't be. And there's no, we have invented this. And then they, they said, they brought in another colleague and ushered him in. And they explained to him and say, please tell this man, what, what is it you've done? And they said, well, the, the software is, it, it's a modem software. And the man looked down and he, he went back into the room that he'd just come from and they said, oh, you have just obsoleted this man's entire division. Wow. <laughs> Yo, great. And, and brings up a point, too, that this all predated wireless cellular technology, such that if you wanted this thing to be connected to anyone or anything, you had to plug it in. Yeah. And I think that's for me where I was like, the whole magic was lost. I remember coming across this archival tape that was the Sony Magic Link commercial. And I was like, oh, this guy's having a great time. He's typing off messages. He's leaving little voice notes. And then he's just like, whoa, hang on. Is he, is he plugging that into a, f okay. Yeah, this is, this is not an iPhone. <laughs> this is, this is a long, long way away. Tell me about that, uh, that, that archival material. Uh, I suspect this sort of ties back into the belief that these guys were rock stars, such that if you did a, a, a documentary about any other company in its early days, the chances of someone filming almost every moment of their lives <laughs> was very slim. But these guys filmed almost everything. Uh, I, I'm going to take that as a huge compliment. Because uh, when we were editing the film, we only had a certain amount of archival footage. And our hope was making the film and for the audience watching it is, is that they would feel like they're living in the company and that there was a huge amount of archival footage. Mission accomplished. Yeah, no. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah, it was, it was, we spent quite a long time editing to try and create that feeling that you got to know the characters and you were living with them. Um, but yeah, in, in answer to your kind of your, your question, it, it was the Newton that created this need for the footage of the engineers to exist. Because the Newton had been announced, it was coming down the pipe, and General Magic were completely floored by it. They had no idea that Apple was working on this Newton project. Newton's about a lot of things, really. I think the part that excites me the most has to do with helping people keep in touch. The idea behind Newton is that it's an assistant, something that actively helps you as you capture, organize, and communicate your ideas and information. The possibilities are just limitless. 
and suddenly they they needed to create their own press and an event in New York in which they could say, we are General Magic. We are a combination of all of these companies in something called the General Magic Alliance. And look at all the CEOs of these companies, Motorola, Sony, AT&T. They're all sat on this stage because they believe in our product. And here is a film of what we are doing. And suddenly there was this footage of all of these engineers tinkering on these devices, all these prototypes. And the engineers liked the filmmakers and they just kept on asking them to come back and film. And one of those filmmakers was Sarah Karouche, who is my fellow director and producer of the film. And so Sarah and I joke about it that Sarah has been working on this film for the last 25 years (laughs) because you can see her sometimes in the back of the footage making these slightly weird Hitchcock appearances, not knowing that she would be making a cameo of a film that she would later direct (laughs) 25 years later. When did they finally crash and burn? I think their crash and burn was kind of weirdly slow. I think um, the there was moments in which like the meteor should have got like burnt up, uh, but then they had enough money to survive. But I think f- for me, like looking at the company and how we explore it in the film, as soon as the device is launched and it it doesn't it doesn't explode, it doesn't hit the mainstream. It's only bought by very few people. That's when the company dies it existed i think for another like seven or eight years yeah, they point out that they're going through the list of people who bought them and they're recognizing the names individually <laughs> totally they sold that few of them they're like oh i know that guy they made the credits yeah yeah uh, before we go as part of my new life um i i find myself not necessarily in your shoes specifically but in a similar sort of world so i'm fascinated by this you had to make a decision as a filmmaker how were you going to present this story? And a geek like me would probably have focused on the technology. You focused on the humanity. How difficult was that to accomplish? Um, that's a really great question. Because uh, you weren't a geek? No. I mean, I'm definitely a geek. I just, um, I think it's weird because I'm speaking to you guys and you were like reeling off like chip names and I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't have that same sort of like fascination that you guys have. So I'm like, I'm a geek. I'm just like more of a comic book nerd. Um, uh, I'm trying to set, like work out how to say this answer without like coming off as like a complete wanker. Um, but I'll just, tr- I'll just go for it. I th- I, as a filmmaker, I'm I'm drawn to the emotional potential of characters and their means for them to be relatable and for an audience to see something of themselves in the characters. And in technology, you wouldn't really expect engineers, people that are kind of seen as like robots or like data from Star Trek to have feelings and to really feel them. And so for me to be able to kind of come into a story that's about technology, which is the hook of the film, you know, like you're seeing like the people that created the iPhone, Android, eBay, but then you're also seeing those people as as people that hurt and then people that succeed and have joy and friendship and camaraderie. For me, it just felt like there was so much emotional potential in the film that that felt like the core of the film. And that, you know, that you would come to watch a film about technology, but you would stay because of the characters and that you felt invested in them. And for me, it kind of goes back to the original thing I was saying at the beginning, which is that if they can do it, so can I, so can you. 
because we have so many problems to solve in the world and some of them can be solved through technology but the message i hope of the film is is that if you failed in something previously that doesn't mean that you should not try again in the future because we're going to need everyone to come to the table if we're going to conquer the challenges that we face move fast break things yeah matt thank you so much for your time and insight no worries. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you. Matt Mott is the director of the Tribeca Film Festival award-winning documentary, General Magic. The film's available on Showtime now. You can pre-order it today on iTunes, and it will automatically show up in your walled garden October 1st. Thank you, guys. I hope I didn't swear too much. No hell. <laughs> Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You, too, can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. So you're, you're ready for the uh, latest on our big GoFundMe campaign to send us to CES 2020? Okay, I think the last time we spoke, it was somewhere around $1,300. Right, so which is essentially 13% of the way to yes. our goal to send you, me, and our ace director, Sean Jate down to cover the Consumer Electronics Show in January in Sin City. Right. Oh, you want me to guess? How, how, yeah, how about we do another Price is Right rules closest without going over? I say $1,350. <laughs> We are almost 30% What to our goal. Where did this money come from? How much? Well, we also have the Patreon, uh -huh. and we have PayPal recurring uh, payment uh, contributions from our fans. And as a result, you lump all of that in together, you get about 30% of the way to our destination. No kidding. Y'all still want me to come with you? So we essentially have two plane tickets. So you and I can get to the airport now, we can get on the plane, we can land at McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas. And then we're going to have to basically find a bridge to sleep under until the show opens. Uh, yeah, there's lots of those. Yeah. Now, Victor Biggio, who is our patron in residence, has a relationship with the Palms. So he might be able to get us a discount for the three or four nights that we're going to stay so that we can not only cover the show, but also use it as a business development opportunity. I stayed at the Palms for, oh, it was a year ago this month, as a matter of fact. I went to the Life is Beautiful Festival, and that's where they put us up. I like the Palms. Awesome. Well, then maybe Victor will be able to work his magic and, and help us out with that. You can help us out as well. Get us to CES 2020 by going to geeksandbeats.com. Right at the top of the page, there's a link to help support the show via GoFundMe. Or you can support the show generally, as many of our uh, listeners do, by way of Patreon. We are four fewer patrons on our Patreon page right now. We want to say goodbye to Greg David, Cameron Galbraith, Rob Laurie, and Dan Lynch. I don't know if you guys have jumped over to the PayPal option instead for the weekly recurring, as opposed to we ding your credit card whenever you have, uh, whenever we have an episode. But we want to say thank you so much for being uh, supporters of the show over the course of your time doing so. And then on the PayPal side of things, uh, Scott Coates, who is just this world traveler, uh, who's a big fan of the show. You may recall this is the guy in Kuala Lumpur. Yep. He is presently in Armenia. Oh. And it's his birthday. 
Really? And every year he likes to make himself a co-producer of the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth for one episode by donating 25 bucks to the big show. He gets his name on the album art that he can print off, frame, and hang in his parents' basement. Well, that's in Armenia. Very cool. Yerevan, Armenia. I don't know even never heard of it either. Uh, Um, Top things to do in Yerevan, according to the Yerevan Travel Guide. How do I spell it? Y-E-R-E-V-A-N. It is the capital of Armenia. It is marked by grand Soviet-era architecture. Um, So the things to do, according to the Google, is uh, visit Republic Square, Mm -hmm. visit an institute and exhibit of rare documents, visit an ornate terraced structure and art museum called the Yerevan Cascade. Cascade, yeah, I'm looking at it, and a nice fountain. Yeah, and and this is the interesting thing about Soviet-era architecture, is they just tried everything. There is the... Titzer Nackerbird, which is a unique building with history exhibits that looks like a, it looks like a nuclear launch tube that is in the process of opening up to reveal the, the, the missile, hmm. which who knows it's, it's Soviet era Russia. It may very well actually have a nuclear bunker underneath it. Maybe. I mean, that was that part of the world, right? Yeah. Hey, it's cheap. I'm looking here. Three star hotel starting 60 bucks, a five star at 180. We should cover CES from Armenia. We could. I mean, that's a long flight. Five hours, five, or 15 hours, five minutes. But still, I do. Okay, hang on. I'm going to try Keep talking. I'm looking up something else. Now, now you've figured that this might be your next vacation destination. I'm, I'm thinking that. Okay, just, just keep talking. That's just bonkers. So thank you so much, Scott, for supporting the big show and everyone else as well who has done so too. If you go to geeksandbeast.com, as I say, they're right at the top of the page. There's an opportunity to support the show. We're also going to be trying to engage uh, brands, as it were, and maybe do some content marketing with them. Uh, Maybe when we're down there, if we get Samsung on the line, we'll go and we'll show off all the Samsung TVs. Of course, we're not going to kiss anybody's butt as part of that. We want to maintain a certain element of journalistic integrity to this. So we're only going to do stuff that is of actual interest to us, assuming that that means it's of actual interest to the listener. $1,500 per person economy. See, there you go. We, we could be in Armenia right now with the funding we've received. We could, with the money that we have. We fly to Amsterdam, then from Amsterdam we go to Moscow. Moscow we go to uh, Yerevan. We'd never make it out of Amsterdam. Mm, probably not. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.